This is Song. And this is Sarah. This is Effing Ethical, where we try to make sense of all the choices facing consumers every day. Today, we're going to be talking about staggering wildfires that are raging in California, you know, that are getting worse and worse every year. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, fires aren't necessarily a bad thing. They've been used for thousands of years to like steward the ecosystem, but Lately, they've been grown kind of completely out of control and have been ravaging the state and, you know, destroying homes and communities. And while my family moved to California um, when I was in college, it wasn't where I grew up. And, you know, we've been fortunate that we've never had to interface with um, extreme fires that threatened our homes or our livelihoods in any kind of meaningful way. But Sarah, I understand that it's especially right now, very deeply personal to you, kind of having grown up where the Calder fires are now. And I believe with your dad also having been a firefighter. Yeah. And so, I mean, my dad was a a city firefighter in Sacramento, but he, he and I actually got our undergrad degree from the same department at Cal Poly. He studied forestry. So cool. And he was a, um, he did wildland firefighting in college and sort of continued throughout his career. So, you know, as like a kid, I definitely learned about like the forest and fire and like how the ecosystem works together. Um, And then learned more from like an academic perspective in college myself. And yeah, for the first time, a fire actually got like up to my parents' neighborhood property. Um, Everybody always knew it was coming. The, Mm -hmm. these homes are like on that, you know, they call it like the, the urban wildland interface. Although in communities like that, it really just is like people living in the forest. So in in a way, everybody knew that someday there would be a big fire. um, And there was always just a question of, but what will it be like? Will it be out of control? Will it take over homes? Will it burn slowly? And all of the work that we did to protect our homes will work. Um, There's always like a question there. So yeah, this was like, basically that 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 test that finally came um, was just this last month. I'd love to start, you know, with some of your personal history. So what was it like growing up in Pollock Pines? Um, I imagine that it was so beautiful out there. And how did kind of living in that area in the um, urban wildlife interface, how did that color your orientation for environmental justice? Um, and how, you know, you touched on this a little bit, but how did also growing up with the father who was a local firefighter, how did that affect your views on fires from a young age? So what I think the, the way that I would start the thing about growing up in the forest is we have like the classic four seasons. So hot, dry summers, um, cool, crisp falls with leaves like brown, red, yellow leaves falling. Um, sometimes it rains or snows even in September. Cold winters with like lots of snow um, and and some rain at the elevation that I grew up and then cool spring that's like kind of rainy. So like these, these like classic American seasons that I have since learned are like not the norm, in like mm. even the rest of the country, but we sort of imagine in like a Hallmark movie kind of way, like that's, that's what it's like. <laughs> um, and so the four seasons really do dictate like what your life looks like. So in the summer, um, people are at like the lakes and rivers. I grew up right next to kind of the first 
mountain lake. Um, so very much, I grew up like in a touristy area. So on the weekends, sometimes it would be bad traffic, but it was highly desirable to come out and go to the lake on boats or go fishing or whatnot. In the winter, everyone skied. I grew up skiing. And then on the the, the shoulder seasons, per se, you did even more outdoor stuff because the weather was nice. Um, but yeah, like I grew up as like hiking was not a special thing you did. It was just like going for a walk. So my dad, as an adult, has always had dogs. We've always had labs who are great hikers. And he basically takes them for some sort of hike, like three to six miles every single day, Um, which also should tell you something about my dad. He is super high energy and like very, very active. So that obviously was imparted on me. Like as a kid, I would like, you know, went from the the backpack carrier to sitting on his shoulders to hiking myself. And yeah, it was just like part of, of life was like being out in the forest on the other hand, it's rural. So I've, I've kind of referenced this before, but um, El Dorado County is a is one of those red California counties. It's rural. It's more conservative compared to the rest of California. There's a lot of agriculture, both actually connected to the forest industry, forestry, a lot of like apples and Christmas trees and uh, wineries now, um, as well as other fruit products. So it's very agricultural, even though it's in the hills. And yeah, I think that the drive to my elementary school was like around 10 minutes. And then the drive to my high school was about 30 minutes. So grew up not in like a dense suburban area. I think that there was maybe like one other kid on my street that we wouldn't have to like drive to to go see other people. So I think that that also kind of uh, affected it. But yeah, I like grew up just like go outside and play, <laughs> like go sit in the forest, like playhouse in my like, you know, forest house of like rocks that I built on the ground. And um, yeah, I think that it, it just felt very normal to me. Like I didn't, I think that I took a lot of advantage of it or took it for granted um, that that I would always have that, always have that access to nature. But it just was like very core to who I was. It's like, of course, I should be out in nature. Of course, everybody should have access to this. Um, but because like we were the people who were in that interface, I think I also had a very early understanding of environmental management or environmental protection isn't isn't really about the environment. It's it's about the people, right? Mm-hmm. So you can take that all the way to talking about climate change and how can we like prevent sort of catastrophe. Well, the earth will probably be fine, but it's the humans that are going to, that it's going to become too intolerable for humans to live in. Right. Like the earth is going to be fine no matter what, like we've had ice ages and like there's, there's a clear ability to reset. The question is, are humans going to be able to survive Mm. as we go? So, so on like a a more micro level, it was very clear that like humans are part of this ecosystem and taking care of your property well, and sort of understanding the risks that you face in, in being near the forest is part of what you understand in, in hand with the enjoyment you get of like living in such a Mm. rural area. And I think that that is what I got as like a unique perspective by having a dad who understood that from an academic and work perspective that like, you know, he knew moving up there that our house was always going to be at risk for fires because California, like 
fire is part of the ecosystem. So you mentioned that earlier, like, you know, fire has been used by indigenous peoples all over the world. Um, the, the places where it's kind of most notable or best studied are um, Australia, but it's, it's very well known that there are these ecosystems that fire is a clear part of it. And there are like botanical evidences of that. So there are certain types of like seeds or trees that either require fire or grow better after fire. So it's very clear that it's always been part of it. The, the natural cause, of course, is lightning. So if you have lightning striking, like thunderstorms coming through in the fall, natural fires will start. And again, like you said, humans have, have used it as well. So we always knew that like there was a risk. We weren't living in the forest thinking that fire would never exist. It was, it was just part of it. Like fire is a risk, yeah. but we manage the land um, to, to minimize the risk to, to humans and buildings. Um, I really loved the way that you framed how the earth will be fine, right? It's resilient and it's bigger than we can possibly imagine, but it's, it's really about the people and whether we'll be able to survive that. And I think that just like puts such a super sharp focus into really why policies matter, bringing the the focus back to what it means, what it means for communities. I would like to take it like just like a step back. And before we get to the now, if you could give us just a kind of a briefer on the history of the regulation of fires and sort of how that's changed over the years. Yeah, so I am going to give a super high level um, background because there's there's so many details and it's so nuanced. But I think that the important pieces to understand are the existing environmental regulation and kind of when it came in and what it requires, and then a little bit about the history. Um, and I'll really focus on California because one, it's the area that I, that I know the best um, because I both grew up there and went to school and studied natural resource management there. But also the truth is like it's the most populated state that is facing this this fire risk. So first on the policy side, so there's two kind of key environmental policies. Both were signed and implemented in um, 1970. One is CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act that was specific to California. And the second was NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act. So both of these are very process-based, which is really important. So there is a specific process, a specific type of documentation that anyone who wants to do basically any type of like real development on a land is required to do. So if you want to build a mall, if you want to build a subdivision, if you want to build a road, all of that is going to require this environmental assessment. And again, it's really about process. So did you look at all the environmental risks? Did you look at all the social risks? Did you speak to all stakeholders, um, neighbors, indigenous communities, you know, local sort of political leaders, um, it can be kind of broad, but that's that's part of it. It's very process-based as opposed to outcomes-based. Um, and what that means is that as, as long as you know very well, and, and, and our listeners will know to some degree, the U.S. is a very litigious um, system. And so the way that developers get held accountable is by holding these up in court. So if you do the assessment and the assessment doesn't look at uh, biodiversity adequately, stakeholders can, you know, if they have the money, there's obviously money required, um, can hold the, the assessment up in court and say this project cannot proceed because they didn't adequately look at say, the biodiversity. So just, just as an example, there are other environmental protection acts that have been implemented in other countries 
that look at this a little bit different. This was really one of the first in the world. And so these are old. They haven't really been updated process-wise since their origin. And you can imagine that if you can hold something up in court for process, that can that can go on for a really long time. There can be really positive wins to environmental activists by doing that. But in general, it can also really just slow down any type of development. Um, so it's just one of those tools that's really imperfect and probably needs, well, definitely needs, and I think that all sort of experts working in this field agree, it just needs another lens, that it's not that it needs to be less protective of the environment, but having a system that can indefinitely be held up in court is is not great. So that's kind of the first piece to, to understand. The other is just sort of like the history in California. So California has almost an infinite number of microclimates. There's all of these different forests. Um, and a really good example of the history of logging is the Redwood Forest in Santa Cruz. So the 1906 San Francisco fire basically devastated the city. And the city was quite large at that point. Um, and much of the redwood forests, which were all old growth. So just like these massive trees, like you can't, if you haven't seen them in person, like look up some pictures that show the scale compared to a person. Cause these old growth trees are huge. Um, they were logged to rebuild San Francisco and you look at the pictures and you just have like completely cleared hillsides and streams and mountaintops and like not a single tree left. Well, when you clear cut, which is what that's called, um, there can be clear negative environmental consequences to that. There's really bad erosion. um, Streams can become polluted. It actually changes the temperature of the stream. So streams become warmer, um, which is not good for fish or other aquatic life. So clear negative environmental consequences that over time in the 19th or in the 20th century, in the 1900s, environmentalists, developers, scientists all learned more and more about. So the 1906 fire is just a really good example. Um, That particular forest, interestingly, redwoods are this amazing species that if you cut one down, so you you cut it down to the ground, all that's left is a stump, like thousands of little trees will just sprout from it. So it's actually really, and the same thing will happen if there's a fire. Um, and the reason is because the the roots basically stay alive and they can just sprout like that. Not all trees can do that, but redwoods can. And so if you go back to this area now, a hundred plus years later, you would never know that this clear cutting happened. So again, like environments can recover themselves. It's just a question of time and, and impact to the broader ecosystem, which includes people. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, one example. And then just like I said, in the 1900s, people just learned more and more about the the real negative environmental consequences. And with the Endangered Species Act, there was a lot more attention paid to the ecosystem for endangered species and not wanting to negatively affect that by, thing, for, by things like logging. Um, so two things kind of happened at the same time. There was a decrease in logging because of these negative environmental consequences or the environmental NGOs holding some of the logging up in in court. And then there was also a, a, a policy of fire suppression. So instead of letting the, the natural fires that would be ignited by lightning burn through, say, the national forests or um, forest land and then sort of protecting homes, they just were always putting fires out. 
good and bad reasons for that, but that just is sort of true. I won't really go into the all of the, the details of, of reason. So that kind of brings us up to today that like all of those little pieces of history mean that the forest land today, even with these huge fires that, you know, the last few years have become national, if not international news, there's actually denser wood. There is more wood. There's more trees in the forest than there was, you know, a hundred years ago. And, and certainly than there was over the past, you know, 10 to 50 years because they're not logging or burning at a rate that actually cuts kind of at the rate that it's growing. And you can imagine like, oh, that, that's a good thing, right? Like we're recovering forests. That's a positive thing. But what it means is you have forests that are incredibly dense. They're, they're too dense. They're not healthy. Again, we talked, you know, you mentioned briefly that indigenous peoples have been using fire to manage forests, to manage ecosystems, to manage grasslands all over the world. And that was true in California as well. So if you have these forests that you just let the trees grow, there's not logging, there's not burning, um, you're not letting the natural fires take place, they are too dense. Um, and then we have, and this is kind of bringing us up to, to today, but this is, this is where climate change and droughts and heat waves really start to, to come in because the, the moisture in the trees is significantly less than it was. So it's easier to burn. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And this is where, you know, the fires are not like, oh, it, it burned a few acres. It even burned, you know, a few thousand acres. This is where you start getting fires that burn hundreds of thousands of acres um, because they've built up so much heat basically going through these live but dry trees and forests that are incredibly dense. You sort of alluded to why we've sort of shifted from fire as like a management tool, as was done for thousands of years, to this kind of new, newer policy of fire suppression. You've Yeah, you've kind of mentioned that there are lots of reasons for that. And I was listening on this podcast called California Burning, um, and I will put a link to it. But I learned that part of it was that like the framing of fires became about became less about having a healthy, you know, kind of sustainable, balanced, self-sustaining ecosystem and um, became more about protecting an economic resource. Um, and, you know, I just thought to myself, like, as we always talk about on the show, everything bad, <laughs> whenever we talk about degradation of environment and, and life, we see capitalism, right, not far behind. We see white supremacy and racism not far behind. Yeah, and that actually connects to one just stat that I think is really interesting. So, you know, you can you can Google a bat. Maybe we'll find one and put one in the notes that shows land ownership in California. Um, if you're from the East Coast, you probably can't even imagine this, but really high percentages of land on the in the entire West are are owned by the federal government. And for California forests in particular, 50% is owned by the federal government. So that would be national forests. There's some national parks. Um, only 3% is owned by the state. is owned by private families, which includes Native American tribes that own forest land. And then 14% is owned by timber companies. And if you look at a map, what you see is the the private land, both that owned by private families, say, like literally my parents' property, and land owned by timber companies. 
it butts up to the national forest. So you might have um, like suburban areas or urban areas that kind of start to go up into the forest in like cities and towns. And then you're going to have the private land owned by timber companies or individuals just outside of that. And then the national forest behind that. So you can imagine you know, the, the national forest, the, the federal government may or may not have an incentive, have an economic incentive to, to save the trees from the fire and sell them off, although they do sell the trees, which you know, they do make money on. Although, you know, to be clear, at a, a net scale, the Forest Service is part of USDA and USDA is definitely not a money making part of the federal government. So, but yes, they're, they're, they definitely can you know, make money off of selling the, the timber. Um, but those privately owned forests and timber companies, of course, they don't want fires that start on the national forest expanding into their land, right? Like we didn't want our house to burn down um, from a fire that that started on or near national forest land for for personal reasons, right? That's our that's our home. We don't want it to burn down. And similarly, timber companies who own you know, land that basically looks the same as the national forest. They don't want the fire spreading onto their land because, like you said, they lose an econ- they could lose or or decrease their economic resource. So when you see how those lands are are connected, economics has definitely always been a piece of it. Yeah, um, and I feel like that kind of brings us to today and sort of how. All of the the policies of the past, how all of the shift in kind of priorities in the past have brought us to um, the kinds of fires that are just, you know, devastating communities right now. So according to CAL FIRE, about 2 million acres just in 2021 have been burned. That's the equivalent of of about 3,125 square miles, more than 3,000 structures damaged or destroyed. And the Caldor fires alone spans about 340 square miles, which is roughly the size of Dallas. What does this mean, though, exactly, right? Like beyond just numbers, what does this actually look like for people living in that wildlife urban interface? Um, What are the kind of techniques on the ground that are being used to manage and and fight uh, the fires and to actually protect communities? What does it mean? Yeah, so I think a really important thing to know is most of the communities that are based in these areas are not wealthy California communities. So there was um, a really big fire a number of years ago that came through kind of North San Francisco Bay area that, that was affecting um, kind of wealthier suburban areas. And the Caldor fire was, you know, right up to Pollock Pines, basically took out the entire town of Grizzly Flat and was getting a lot of local attention, but didn't get national attention until it was very close to, to South Lake Tahoe, which is, of course, a tourist destination and um, at least a comparatively wealthier community. So I think that the first thing to sort of think about, and it'll be you know, interesting, there's research sort of coming out or data coming out about the the fire that took out Paradise, California, a couple years ago that was really devastating. Again, these are these are not wealthy communities. There's a, a variety of income um, and, and, and home sizes and property, but you do have a lot of a higher than average, higher than state average, higher than county average population that's living below the poverty level, which means things like they probably don't have fire insurance, 
um, fire insurance was all over the news. And if you're from California, you definitely know this, but there were national insurers or California insurers that were basically pulling their fire coverage of all of these areas because there were so many fires. Like with with Paradise, if you had coverage with all of these um, or many of the homes in that area, you know, your payout was going to be way bigger than you actually had the resources for. So it's had this huge direct hit on the fire insurance industry. And the other piece of that is in a lot of these places, because of the risk of fire, which is very clear, you actually have to have fire insurance to get a mortgage. But if you live in a home that has been paid off, if you've lived there for a long time, if you've built your own home, or if you've put like a travel trailer on a piece of property, you may have not needed a mortgage and you may not be paying fire insurance. So there is a significant economic consequence. Um, and there's always this question of, you know, who's going to pay, right? Like you start to see crowdfunding campaigns popping up for individuals who who lost homes and property. Um, and again, a lot of people have fire insurance and it, and it works out. But of course, the more fires and the more homes that are destroyed by fires, the more expensive fire insurance becomes and the more it has to be subsidized by the government. And so this is where the policy thing is really interesting because let's say you are, you know, a, a California lawmaker and you're staring down this fact that politically your constituents are going to require you to pay more into fire insurance because your constituents, you know, let's El Dorado County, for example, they can't continue to pay it because it's getting so expensive. So you're creating a law or finding funds in order to cover or, or subsidize that insurance. Well, if that's the only thing you're doing, then insurance is only going to get more expensive and you're only going to be subsidizing more. If you are looking at the management of the forest and the actual risk to fire, then maybe you can put in different policies or policies at the same time that decrease the fire risk or at least you know mitigate it and can, can bring the cost of fire insurance down so the state is no longer or, or it may be less, less liable, having to pay out less. So that's where some of these policies start to come together. And th- this is where I always like to remind even my most um, progressive thinking American friends that Americans are very libertarian <laughs> compared to uh, <laughs> citizens of other countries. So we don't like anyone telling us what we can do on our own property. So it's one thing to say the state should be doing X with their property, right, for fire management, or the state should be requiring private business, which sometimes we're a little bit more okay with, to be doing something with their property. But my property that my home is on, we really do not like government coming in and saying how we have to manage it. But because of the risk, there is quite a bit of work being done. Cal Fire leads it. With the Caldor Fire, South Lake Tahoe was this excellent example of South Lake Tahoe residents are really diligent about keeping their properties clear. And I saw sort of like a, a quick stat that was just a good example. You know, the fire was incredibly hot because of the reasons that I described earlier, these really dense, dry forests. And the flames were 150 feet high, so like kind of an incomprehensible height. 
when they hit the urban interface where there were homes and people managing their property and, and clearing, the flames got down to 15 feet. Well, 15 feet is mm-hmm. below a house roof. Um, it's below branches and trees. And then the fire just burned on the ground. And so that is the reason and tons of work, obviously, that was done during the fire that South Lake Tahoe was like completely saved. So where I think that there needs to be more work and and what I think will be effective is a combination of state and federal agreement about, you know, how to manage the forest, what can be done, what the appropriate way to use the existing environmental laws are, where there might be scenarios where the state or the federal government can basically like override some things because the work just has to be done. And really, really local policies. Because again, like, you know, rural California, they're not going to be very happy about the state saying this is the thing you have to do. But if your local council people or local representatives are working with local residents and providing them the resources to clear their properties, then that's something that can be really effective and will, you know, allow people to continue to live in those spaces and have their homes be protected. Yeah, I love what you said about how it's complicated, right? It's not going to be any just one federal policy. It's not going to be one state policy. It's not just going to be one local policy. It's not going to be up to corporations, right? Like it, it just going to be a multi-stakeholder solution that's needed to um, all the challenges that, that we're facing right now. And when you were talking about what it looks like for communities that are being directly affected on the front lines of the fires, it just kind of reminded me about, um, so again, like I didn't grow up around fires. And so I, I don't really have context around it, but I did grow up around hurricanes because I grew up in Florida and I lived in New York City for a long time. And so with everything that's been happening in New York City because of the aftermaths of Hurricane Ida and the folks that were the most impacted were the poor immigrant communities that were living in basement apartments. And, you know, you kind of mentioned about um, Americans tending to be a little bit more libertarian, especially when it comes to like the government regulation of homes and how do you balance that quote unquote freedom with, with safety and yeah, it's, it's just like a really complicated question, even with like the basement apartments, right? Like some people are saying, okay, these basement apartments need to be outlawed. But it's not as simple as that, because then where are newer poor immigrants? Like, where are they going to find housing, right? Because housing stock in New York City is is inadequate right now, right? Um, what's going to happen to the, the landlords that are providing space? Like, how do you, how, like, is it, you know, how do we regulate that? There's so many questions that it's not as simplistic as just, it, it's not just about changing this like one policy, right? Like it always requires thinking through all of the different kind of stakeholders involved, so yeah, I really appreciated you kind of walking me through all of that. And you alluded to kind of how while the fires right now, I mean, they're in California and it's it's where most of the fires are taking place, right? It's like the kind of largest landmass where it's taking place, but in general, right? It's not just a California problem and you know, you've mentioned some of the policies kind of on a local level, policy challenges that we're facing now. But 
what are the kinds of questions that we should be thinking about and considering as we think about policy change? What kind of what kind of questions should we be asking? What are you thinking about? I think that you know you mentioned like how do you manage like freedom and you know property and freedom that is, is associated with that and there can be other types of freedom and safety. And like if that is not the crux of policymaking <laughs> like um and especially yeah. here in the US, right? Like again like we have almost always erred on the side of freedom. In in some situations we push the policy to, to the side of safety. And what I, th- what I'm seeing now, and you rightly noted that like, it's a, it's a multi-stakeholder endeavor to figure this out. And I'm optimistic about this being worked out because it's a real risk to everyone, right? Like everyone's land is burning down. Everyone's forest is burning down. Yeah. Everyone's resources are being drained. I mean, you know, it's taxpayers who are funding the the fire departments that come out to fight many of the fires. And some of them are federal and some of them are state and some of them are local. And there's like all of these different things. And so it's not, I think that, you know, and, and I'm, yeah. I like talking about this and I like having these like nuanced policy discussions, but I think that one of the most important things people need to think about is like getting away from what they assume the issue is and that say the other side or people who are looking at it differently would somehow have it wrong. So climate change, for Mm -hmm. example, is real and is really happening, but it's not the only thing happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if your argument about, you know, for addressing this is purely on the side of middle and long-term solutions to, to mitigate against climate change or avoid um, kind of the worst disasters, that's only a piece of it. Similarly, if your perspective is, you know, we haven't logged enough, which is true, <laughs> or we haven't allowed natural fires or prescribed burns to adequately burn through the forests and keep them healthy, that's true. But that's not the whole truth, right? So the the policies need to take into consideration long-term changes in temperature and short-term risks and costs that local, state, federal governments, individuals, businesses are all facing every year because of the fire season, um, which it's now, it's a season. I mean, I was talking to somebody recently who also grew up in California, but is a bit older than I am. And they said, you know, they're like, I I don't remember this. Like, I don't remember this summer fire season. And it's because there wasn't a summer fire season. The fires started in like September, October, and maybe there'd be one or two big fires a year in California. And now you have Mm. really big fires starting early in the summer, way before there's any storms coming in which is another one of the reasons why they continue to grow because there's not a natural decrease in activity because of temperature change or precipitation. So when I'm thinking about policies, I think, you know, one, it's really like assuming that other perspectives have good intentions in wanting to solve this problem and addressing the fact that it really is poor communities who are the most impacted Mm -hmm. So if you don't have fire insurance, obviously that's a you know really negative impact. If you are 
um, more kind of lower middle class working poor um, where you can afford a house, maybe a smaller home and you have a mortgage, it's possible that the cost of fire insurance makes it impossible or, or out of reach to actually get that mortgage. So making sure that the policies are looking to support like the most vulnerable communities um, in these areas. I always really appreciate your calling out sort of the need for nuanced thinking when we're thinking about policies, right? Um, and something that I think I've been thinking about recently and my mind kind of always goes through is, well, what about, yeah, what about like the responsibility of corporations and um, and supply chains and how, what kind of role do they play um, in impacting not just what happens, you know, directly in their supply chains, but of the folks that are further out. So for instance, like I recently read this report by Global Witness, and it stated that like 227 frontline environmental activists were murdered in 2020 for protecting ecosystems, right? So these were activists who were fighting to prevent things like overlogging and, you know, kind of large, uh, large scale agribusiness, right, that were destroying lands. And things like this have been kind of happening with impunity, right? People being murdered for protecting their lands. And and that's not to, to mention, you know, the kind of harassment and, and, you know, things like that, that have been happening as well. Um, yeah. And so it, it made me really think too, not just about the kind of the more obvious logging companies or agribusiness directly and their effects on the land, but what does it mean for us to hold corporations accountable for, yeah, for protecting people, not just in their supply chains, but that are, you know, working to protect the environment in, in places where they work. There's a lot of a lot of challenges and a lot of different kind of angles that um, we need to be thinking about as we're thinking about how to how to sort of move forward and hopefully turn the tide. And so, Sarah, I'd love to hear from you. I you know really appreciate the kind of hopeful tone that you bring to our conversations. I wonder if there are things that you've sort of seen on the ground that you've been excited about or things that you think are possible in the near future for us to become better about fire and land management? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So the first thing that came to mind that really is connected to what you just said as well, I posted it to the Effing Ethical Instagram page a while ago, and I'll link it again in the show notes here. But the podcast Timber Wars, it is like amazing storytelling and it discusses like a decades long conflict between environmentalists and logging companies um, and local communities. So kind of three distinct set of stakeholders with some overlap between them in Oregon. Um, I highly recommend it. And I think that this is where, I think that my recommendation is often on things like this to just to do a little bit of research and like understand what's going on. So the the biggest conflict or a big conflict that is always ongoing in Northern California is this very like Bay Area elites versus everywhere else. Um, because the truth is everywhere else in Northern California is more conservative. Obviously cities, other cities, Sacramento example, like aren't necessarily conservative, but but more so than San Francisco. And so you have this scenario where because of population density and political power, 
a lot of the policymaking and opinions are coming from the quote Bay Area elites, um, and and it, it's just true. <laughs> like it's it's like longstanding um, assumptions or um, problem, but there's also just truth to it, right? There is population density, there's money, there's power in the Bay Area. So with things like this, I and and I think that the Timber Wars podcast does a really good job of doing this. Is just like take a second to better understand what is actually happening on the ground. Because if you grew up in a city, it, it might seem really simple what the answer should be. Or it might seem really weird that the people who live in these forest areas would seemingly vote against their best interests or like against policies that would protect them long term. So I think that just better understanding kind of what's happening on the ground in the same way that we talk about other policy issues and say, you know, who are the most vulnerable and impacted people? Look at their lived experience and how this policy affects them. Environmental policies directly affect people who live in rural areas. So better understanding who those people are, what their interests are, why they might be thinking the way that they do. Um, I think can just be really useful and yeah, cannot recommend Timber Wars enough for some of that understanding. I think on the other hand, really looking into like sustainable forest products is, is a really interesting sort of piece of it. So the truth is like, look around you, there is probably a paper product within like you know, an arm's length reach. Like we are a society that is largely dependent on paper products. Paper products come from trees. A lot of those trees are from the Northern California, Oregon, Washington area where there are certain species that grow pretty fast and they tend to be clear cut. Um, Maybe not the huge detrimental ones that I was discussing like after the San Francisco fire, but you know, you look at a a hillside and when you're driving through rural Washington or Oregon and like there's just no trees there all of a sudden and you know those are those are trees that are going into your paper products so just thinking about where these things come from um you know yourself and there's uh FSC certified is a certification around sustainable forest products something you can look into and it's something that you can look for on things like notebooks and other like printed materials and i think just thinking more about like it's an industry with a lot of different, a lot of different stakeholders that are really heavily involved, um, and I think it's another one of those many things, kind of like climate change, where policymakers and voters also need to trust scientists more. Like, really look to the scientists who are saying, mm-hmm. you know, hey, the forest is getting hotter, so maybe even logging or doing controlled burns, prescribed burns, in the way that we did. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, isn't going to be effective. Maybe we need to do something different. So really looking to scientists who are incorporating all these things into, into policies, I think is another place that we can, can look. Like on the one hand, we should all be, be trusting our intuition. On the other hand, we should also be looking for the lived experiences and expertise of folks who are closer to the issue. Yeah, no, I love that. Thank you so much, Shara, for sharing your personal narrative and really putting color on what's been happening, you know, with the fires in California. 
um, and also letting us know, you know, why it really matters for all of us and for all of those great resources and tips on, on how to be more thoughtful and unintentional about all of this. Thanks. Yeah, I love talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. It's always such a treat for us to get to carve out this time to catch up and chat about topics we care about. And we're grateful for you all for giving us a space to do just that. We'd love to hear what you'd like to hear. And we're open to any and all requests. Come on through to songandsarah.com or our Instagram at effingethical. See you there.